New York City during the 1970s was a beautiful ravage slag. Impoverished and neglected after suffering from decades of abuse and battery. She stunk of sewage, sex, rotting fish and old diapers. She leaked from every pore. No Wave was the waste product of Taxi Driver, Times Square, The Son of Sam, The Blackout of 77. The desperate need to violently rebel against the complacency of a zombie nation dumbed down by sitcoms and disco. We were howling with delight, laughing like lunatics in the madhouse that was New York City. Thrilled to be rubbing up against the freaks and other outcasts who somehow, for some unknowable reason, had all decided to run to Land's End and, all at once, stream their bloody heads off. I took a walk through this beautiful world Felt the cool rain on my shoulder This is a show about a very special place, a very special time, and some very special people. So much happened, so much began on New York's Lower East Side. Those buildings are still there. You know this neighborhood from the dope cops. Yeah, great. all of them. I mean, I know every, every, every corner I've ever been. By order of, like, preference, you know, because there was some, you, you know, you'd really rather not to go, go to. That was, like, sort of, like, you know, last resort. Yeah. Somewhere, uh, there was a hole, a big hole in a wall right there. Basically, like, a car-sized hole in a wall. You'd step into an abandoned space. I didn't know any spots down there. I mean, people would take me, of course, yeah, yeah. but it was not my regular. Yeah, yeah. My regular was here at Executive in Laredo were my preferred. But for a while, I had to go specifically to Yeah. The Lower East Side was in many ways the cradle of New York. <clears throat> the Lower East Side was in many ways the cradle of New York, where new arrivals first settled, built communities, and later moved on, only to be replaced by others. In the New York City of the 70s, nearly bankrupt, riddled with corruption, the Lower East Side, particularly Alphabet City, was left to fend for itself. Huge swaths of it abandoned, ruined, or simply empty. Much of it became an open-air supermarket for drugs. Whole blocks taken over by organized drug gangs. Rents were cheap, and the neighborhood started to attract a newer, highly energized and creative group of people who wanted to make things. Music, poetry, movies, and art. 
It seemed at the time everybody was a star. And for a while at least, that it was a golden time. But it was dangerous. You lived down here, you had to be tough and talented, and often very quick. Now, things are different. Very different. Everybody together. Ready? One, two, three. Pick those feet up six inches and hold. Bring that arm over. Pin the wrist. Let's go. Is everybody clear? Yeah. I can't hear you. Yeah. Okay, on three. One, two, three. Let's go. I mean, this is pretty much some of the last remnants of what the Lower East Side kind of used to be like, you know? Good old school, no elevator. <laughs> so you, you didn't live in this building. No, this wasn't the building I lived in. This is a squat, though, that actually became legal. I was actually in that building right there. When I lived in it, it was, you know, we had no windows, no front doors. You know, you'd find a door in the street. You'd put it up and chain it up yourself, you know. No running water. I used to bathe in the fire hydrant in front of the building, and I used to sleep with my pit bull so rats wouldn't get too close to me at night, right. you know. You actually grew up here. What was that like growing up, growing up here, being a little kid here? My main problem growing up down here was that I lived on a gang block. Right. The gang on my block was called the Hitmen. And, you know, they were no joke, right? And I remember they would be hanging out on the stoop on the church across the street, smoking dust, all of them with their golf clubs and 007 knives, and everybody would be listening to, uh, of all things, Kraftwerk, right. Trans Euro Express. Right. They'd be out there screaming, we're going to kill the next one that comes out of that building. And I'm laying there. <laughs> thinking, wow, well, I gotta go to school tomorrow, man. I was never a violent person. You know, Christ, I was raised by hippies. I, but I was thrown into a, a crazy environment where I had no choice but to fight my way through it. I always had a cue ball and a sock in my pocket. I'd split your head open quicker than you could say, what the? And it did turn me into a bit of a, a problem as a teenager, you know? I would guess. Wait a minute, I don't have to guess. I know. <laughs> First time I saw you, you were famously that 12-year-old drummer in the Stimulators. Your aunt was in the band. Yeah. That was the only reason we were allowed to play at most of the clubs is because I had a relative who was basically my legal guardian. I need to get a vanilla egg cream. What do you get? Chocolate egg cream. Chocolate please. egg cream. Yeah, one vanilla, one chocolate. I got PTSD, man. It's like, I just feel like I'm seeing ghosts when I'm down here, man. I miss it, though. I'll tell you, as much as, as I painted it as, as this horror story, which it was, I loved it. You know, it, it'll always be a part of who I am. My man. Cheers. All right, Ray, yeah. thanks for the egg cream. That is a superb egg cream. They don't make them no better. The looks in my what? I had a sign the last, uh, what is it, the last words of Dutch Schultz. Be out of it. You came here first as a writer, as a poet. New York, in your mind, was where the writer's life was? Yeah, well, it was just the place that had the most stimulation. Was music even in the back of your head, or was poetry yeah. and writing? My model was Dylan Thomas there when I was a teenager. You know, so being a drunken womanizer, that was my ambition. I mean, I <laughs> 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 
woke up in your own lifetime, opened up a paper, and realized there's like a million kids in Britain dressing like me and cutting their hair like me. And you have this inadvertent tectonic effect on kids well, all over the it world. It wasn't inadvertent, but it was indirect. I mean, I wanted to have that effect. Other bands who responded to the way I was doing things got famous. So it ended up having this huge impact and influence. When I first saw a picture of the Sex Pistols, it was like, I just had to laugh. That's a charitable interpretation of events. Malcolm McLaren came to New York and saw the Voidoids and went back and built a boy band and said, you're going to dress like that guy. Yeah, I don't really look at it that way. <laughs> I look at it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I mean, ideas are free. I never resented that. Mm -hmm. But it was funny and strange. Cheap rent brought a lot of people yeah. together. It wasn't just living spaces were cheap. There were venues where you could put whatever it was you did out there. Where yeah. you... CBGBs didn't exist until we created it. I mean, we went and proposed that we be the, the house band there. The thread that number is called, uh, I belong to the blank generation. And then your band, the Voidoids, what were your expectations? I wanted everything that anybody who starts a band wants, but I didn't even quite realize how weird and uncommercial I was. I thought what I was doing was really uh, catchy. <laughs> Do we over-romanticize that period? Was it special? I think the creation of the mythology of the 70s kind of began in the mid-90s. I can see why people who weren't there wish they were there, but it goes against all my instincts to think that way, just because the idea is we didn't like where things were, so we decided to change them. Why are you here tonight? I guess we're just interested to see what's going on. We saw a bit in, I think it was New Yorker, and more or less thought we'd see what was happening. Simple as that. How about you? It's a fascinating place, I must say. It's, it's probably one of the most interesting places in New York. Just simply the uh, the neon lights are, and the crowd here, it's all very interesting. Would you come here again? No. <laughs> Have you ever considered writing a dishy memoir? I mean, my God, it would be 800 yeah, pages long. you know why? Because so many people are still alive. I mean, people love you. Yeah, they have to say that. How can you say something mean about somebody who might be mean back at you? It's an industry. <laughs> are you kidding me? was like the first time you saw Iggy, and I didn't see him. I heard the music from down the hall. I mean, I thought, this is the rock and roll. I always wanted to hear something that was this fierce, and yet you could send you, there was a tune there. When I bought Funhouse in high school, yeah. I was immediately ostracized. Yeah. This was defining music, and normal people didn't like it. The Ramones met because they were poor outcasts in a high school with 5,000 people who liked Funhouse. Right. Okay? They had it all figured out that they would sell as many records as the great record yeah. sellers would sell. And in a few years, they would have so much money that they would re retire right. and never have to work again. Right. Especially with each other. <laughs> yeah. That's what. They had to stay on the road for another... 25 years. Yes. Do you know where the greatest financial success has come from. Hey ho, let's go. Right. Sung in football and soccer stadiums around the world. The Ramones estates are gathering in more money from five seconds than they ever made in the... Is that the measure of greatness or eternity? It's one of them.
so many people died. So many people didn't get recognized. Yeah. Richard Hill's still living in the same apartment he lived in. 40 who, years ago? Who likes to move in New York? He got a good deal. The <laughs> neighborhood got all better around him, you know. Iggy was supposed to be the one who didn't make it most of all. And he's still there, the most dangerous. God sends us these signs that there are miracles. Don't give up hope. What you believe is beautiful probably is, but not everyone will know it in time. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Hugh Mackey. Moved over here in 81 and started this shop in 86. When we opened this shop here, we were the only like business on the block. We were the only like real thing apart from just mayhem down here. Basically, it's been a one-man show with one person helping me and we still fix old British bikes. We're really into it, but Nowadays, there aren't so many people into it anymore, and the supply of bikes is dwindling. It's gotten to the point now where I'm the only bad thing on the block. I'm now the mess, I'm now the, the noise, I'm the scruffy building. It's not that anymore. It's just not. I mean, it's super expensive restaurants which come and go every five years high-heeled girls with mink coats on getting in fancy schnitzel restaurants and they're standing on rats and they think that's cool. What they don't know is that before the restaurants were here, there were no rats. You know, all these like rich people are coming down here and standing on rats and think that's East Village and it never was, you know. So... section of New York that's completely broke. You are broke. You're going to be an artist and not just art, but fairly 
confrontational. How committed do you have to be to do that, particularly at that time? I think that, it, it, contrarily, it hasn't been that hard. I feel like um, I've been very fortunate to, to have got to stay alive here. So, and I have everything I need. Look around us. It's a wonderful amusement park of uh, good and bad ideas all happening at once. You know how people immigrate here to start a new life and to dream big? I felt like I needed to do that as well, just like the way the people did at the turn of the century. You moved to New York to immigrate to a new land to start a new life. and. And that's really what the Lower East Side is all about. You know, it was an extremely rare and wonderful time. I think only now do I realize how fortunate I was that I got to experience a neighborhood that had Jack Smith on First Avenue, that had the Living Theater, that had Jonas Mikas on Second Street. Who thrilled you back then? Who, who was doing stuff that you just thought, holy shit, this is really incredible and inspiring? Um, well, gosh, um, luckily, my friends that I was working with were very inspiring. I loved Joe Coleman's work. The Lower East Side at that time was a destination for me. There was something, you know, that compelled me, you know, to just be there. And I would paint it. Squeeze in. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh, yes, you were telling me about this yeah. guy. Yeah. And here, you, you, if you want to yeah. use this. It's beautiful. You know, all the paintings are novels, you know, or, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a dense story. And the more that you look, the more that you learn. And it's in nonlinear time, you know, like you're exploring, you know, at your own pace, whatever you want to look at. And someone else might start in a different place and, you know, it, it might tell a different story. The performance art, at what point he came to paint, or did you come to paint? No, I came, I came to paint, but the paintings were like implosions where I was studying the world around me and myself inside, and the performances became literal explosions. I learned violence from my old man, so I was angry, you know? When your house is on fire, you know, you don't read poetry and you don't, you know, sing a folk song. You know, you gotta scream. I missed all the great art of the time. I came for heroin, I came for, for music. Other than that, I, I didn't live here. But, man, a lot of people didn't make it. And I remember, I guess, around 1980, it was like, something is happening, and no one knows what it is. You mean the AIDS? AIDS. Yeah, yeah. A lot of that time exists in my mind like a dream, like, a, like an opium dream. I have these people that I love that would just, like, drop out and fall out. I'm a little bit sad that I wasn't there. I wasn't present, you know, for them because I was too off in this other world. But for me, it was still something of great beauty to that time. You have Wall Street tycoons fighting for huge amounts of wealth and you have like bums, you know, fighting over like pennies and it has like a, a you know a, a primal like, oh. 
for Passover, matzah pray, special matzah, special days. I've been coming here since 1966. Over 50 years. Over five years. It's family. So everyone should come, but not too many people. <laughs> Places like Keith Haring and I would love to come here. Jean Michel would join us, and we would have good meals here on a regular. And it was consistently the exact. You know, it's great when you can go to some place they have the exact same food. Come on, this still is still the it. same. Still exactly the same. That's encouraging. Which is great. It's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, even though there's a, a hotel three doors away right. and high rises going up, you can still have a decent meal. culture to a very finite number of people yeah. initially on the Lower East Side mm -hmm. totally changed the world. Teenagers at that time were doing something interesting, so I wanted to find some people that would listen to these ideas. And that's what led me to the Lower East Side and to connect with. I guess you met Glenn O'Brien. Glenn O'Brien, uh, yeah. Glenn was key to it all, because I would read his column in Interview Magazine. It was just brilliant. And I met him, and he embraced me and invited me to be a part of a TV party, which was this uh, underground. Oh, I remember it well. I watched it wow. at the time. Hi, and welcome to TV Party. Fred. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Holy Land looks like? I want you to know that I've been to the Holy Land. And the Holy Land is so funky. It's funky, Bella. It's funky. And through that connection is where I met all these people that listened to all these ideas I had. And that was David Byrne, Chris Stein, and Debbie Harry, and so many amazing people that were just like, yeah, tell me more. What I think is under-celebrated about you guys in particular was your kindness. You were famously really, really supportive of the people you came up with, your contemporaries and people yeah. around you who weren't doing as well, you know, let each other sleep well, on each other's floors. Well, there was nothing at stake. There was nothing at stake. And I mean this in a good way. You were writing hits from the beginning. I mean, these are enduring songs that people are still listening to and hold up. I just think a lot of people had low expectations. You, you didn't. I mean, you had a, you had a plan. Well, yes. no. If we had a plan, we would have made more money <laughs> and not got so completely over yeah. by the, the the industry, as it we were. We had a plan know? to survive. Yeah, I mean, we, we were had a plan ongoing. to keep going doggedly. But I think the thing that was so attractive about that period was. You weren't locked in to one format or one form, you know? It was just, everybody was doing everything. You introduced the 
entirely revolutionary notion that street art mm -hmm. was, in fact, really art. The painting that we did on the street was coming from a place that pop art came from as well, like popular culture, magazines, advertising, comics. And so some of the first people to buy paintings from me and Jean-Michel was Chris and Debbie from Blondie. And then they also commissioned me, Lee Quinones, and Jean-Michel to do sets and art and participate in their music videos, some of the very first. Your support and work with Fab Five Freddy I mean, look at the soundtrack to the whole world now. It's, it's hip-hop. That connection, that crossover there, you, you got to put considerable muscle and gravitas. I talked to all these record company guys, and I'd say 98% of them told me it was a fan. It's not going to last. It's, it's going to go away in five years. And you recorded a song that, that was hugely... Well, I, t I will say, you know, like, we're... I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, we created a format that didn't exist in rap until then, and that is that we wrote a song that had a rap in it. Yeah, those guys were sampling stuff. The rap, rapping was all right. just scratching and sampling, so we, you know, made it viably commercial. And then, you know, yet another earth-shattering event, the Wild Stop. I had an idea that if we could make a movie and show that this rapping, this dancing, and this DJing was one thing. So I was on a trip to Germany not long after the film had aired, and I see these kids breakdancing. I'm like, what the hell's going on? As I got closer, I noticed the moves the kids were doing were the exact same moves that the Rocksteady crew does in Wild Style. But I then knew that this was going to translate globally. I remember that film opening, and that was a nuclear bomb. And it ended up being like the second highest grossing. Second to Terms of Endearment, which right. not many people think about now, but yeah. You did film, well. You, know, you gotta love that moment of corporate terror in the film industry when people are looking at the weekend grosses and it's like, What's this? <laughs> Who is this audience that did not appear in our metrics? No, it was a great, great experience. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I came to the Lower East Side back in 1964. When I came here, the changes was already in motion. There was the heroin epidemic, beginning of the homeless epidemic. And there I was, witnessing all these changes. That's the history of the Lower East Side. Everybody have to go back and find themselves in the Lower East Side probably every day or every week, just by walking through it. That's my connection to the neighborhood. That's the neighborhood connection to me. You know, to, to photograph that before that change, to have that running history. My main thing now is to keep a running record. So I started the 4th Street Photo Gallery here, and it's been history ever since. I'm still here. I survived.
you started making films before you knew how to make films. Yeah, yeah. The oddball thing about it is knowing so little, being an amateur was so helpful. Who knew that you could hire a casting director? No, it was just like, hey, you play that, you play that, you know. Hey, Which one of our friends are yeah, going to be around exactly. for this? Yeah. Are you going to be around next Tuesday? Because I can, you <laughs> know. I saw myself more as like experimental filmmaker. You know, like the Godard films, for example. They were inspiring because I could say, I could do that. I owe a lot to Amos. No, I saw The Foreigner. It was amazing. It was the whole scene was there. Everybody was there. It was yeah, that really, was a big night. I got so charged up. And yeah, I was, was sure I was going to make films. And your first film was a student film. My first film was a student film, Permanent Vacation. They think people like myself are crazy, you know, because of the way I live, you know. NYU Film School made a mistake, so I had a $12,000 budget for my first film. Which is enormous for the time. It's huge for me, but the root of the word amateur is the love of a form, and professional means you are doing it for money. So I still hope that I consider myself an amateur, for sure. What was the budget on your first film? Oh, man. $12. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on what you call a first film, but um, Blank Generation was like 2200 I started shooting bands, and it was more, how do you shoot music with a silent camera, basically? And then Unmade Beds was like my first narrative film. It was like about 4,000. I think on Unmade Beds, someone from the New York Times called it the cinematic equivalent of kindergarten scribbling. And Amos put that on his posters, New York Times, and that was the most like punk ass move. So yeah, so what do you think now when you walk around the neighborhood? You know, you used to you paid some dues to walk down back in the day, Whoa. and now it's projectile vomiting frat boys with baseball caps on backwards. Oh, Does man. this give you a sinking feeling, uh, make you angry, or I wish you I, I would have bought real estate, that's sure. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I always tell myself is look at the history of New York City, and it's always about hustling and change. change. And if you want it to stay the same, man, you get the wrong historical spot because there used to be a, a Native American trading post on the tip of Manhattan. It's now Wall Street, you know? I just don't want to go out in the streets no more. I just don't want to go out in the streets no more. Because these people, they give me, they give me the Yeah, sure, I love thick people. I'd be interested to look at your uh, dope bags. Yeah, here's some. I got this guy who was a bank robber, and he was going to jail. He hooked me up with this. This is really it. Oh, wow. Airmail. Airmail. Okay, 12th Street. Yeah. Uh, I might have a little bit more glasses on for this. Yeah. It's a treasure. DOA, I remember. Poison, you must remember. Poison, yes, of course. Evidence. You were a psycho. I remember all of those. Did you ever do Hellraiser? No, I don't, I don't remember ever. Toilet. It is. Classic, right? You know, you were, you knew you were doing something bad when you bought a product called Toilet and, you know, shot it in your arm. Oh, man, memories. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically, your reputation is the godfather archivist of all things Lower East Side. You were here pointing your camera at stuff since the early 80s. I probably have one of the largest inner city photograph collections of anybody. I used to know everybody that went by. And that neighborhood thing is like really important to me. So I photographed the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans, drag queens from the Pyramid Club, basically the whole hardcore scene in 87. I was more interested in like the eccentric people, the unique people.
at the Battle of Tompkins Square Park, which is sort of the Gettysburg of the Lower East Side. I remember it had essentially become clogged with nodding junkies, right. uh, homeless people who'd set up a permanent camp. It was dangerous. It, it was genuinely dangerous. When the police came down and decided to clean the park, the question is, who won? Well, in the beginning, we did. You know, you have to remember, in 1988, they couldn't close a 10 and a half acre square park in the Lower East Side. That was 450 riot cops, horses, helicopters, they couldn't do it. Big bonfires in the middle of Avenue A, buses couldn't come down, cars couldn't down, it was stuck. You were on the news a lot, I remember. Lot, you were the yeah. most like despised man in uh yes. you know, I mean in NYPD, yeah. you were you were not their favorite photographer, let's put it that way. This went on for four years. There were multiple riots, hundreds and hundreds of arrests. Four years here, a real solid conflict. Cops eventually got organized. I think this was the beginning of the sort of police state mentality in America. I remember Tompkins Square, after the police fenced it off, it was, in a lot of people's minds, the end of an era. And yeah, when they cleared off the drugs, a lot of people think, hey, great, we're now going to have a neighborhood and everything's going to be safe. And then in came the gentrification. So the whole concept of America is being wiped out because you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps anymore because you can't get in the game. Gentrification has affected the whole city. You have to now make a huge amount of money to be here. You know, they got skyscrapers in Midtown that are sold millions of dollars apartments they're and nobody empty. lives in and they're empty. I live in one of those big empty buildings yeah. that, with, with, with absentee owners. Is that all that's gonna be left in New York? Yes. New York, there was always something that brought it back. But once you fill it with the corporate world, it's never going back. So we turned a corner that we will never go back again. And so it's over. It's over. It's over. Okay, then I'm gonna go straight into the... Straight, you're gonna go straight. You're finally going straight. Little, little oh my late, God, I'm, I'm impressed. Can you verify exactly what straight means? If I know. No way, honey. Even when uh, you're straight, you're not straight.
expect to make a living from no, your art? Of course not. At no, no. I just was happy I didn't have to suck in an Iranian shoe store. First of all, I thought I would come to New York to do spoken word, but spoken word didn't really exist. So I started uh, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. I had to really make the most hideous yet precise din I possibly could as a tantrum against all of music and all of society. There were a lot of freakish never could have happened at any other time. It seems to well, me bands who who had a ready-made audience. Okay, as you did, you would have said you could basically say, "I am a rock star." Well, no, hey, wait, 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 wait. We're really I am back a star. No, no, no. And First of all, I never said I was a star. No, but I mean by no. not by word, but by deed and deportment. Well, we are great, aren't we? First of all, I'm not a star. I'm not an icon. That might be in your midnight fantasies. You walked into a club. People knew who you were. I didn't walk into any place thinking I'm a star. I walked in thinking I had shit to do. But I wouldn't say I was a catalyst. I'd say I was a cattle prod. To get people to do shows, booking shows, curating shows, it's just what I do. It's like, let's go, let's do it. And when people would ask me to do things, they'd be like, yeah, I want to do it, of course. People were beautiful doing things because they had to do it, not because of any other grand idea. So what made you happy back then? I mean, do you have any, did you have any happiness happy moments? Happiness was not the goal. Satisfaction was the goal, as it still is. My anger is on a global level. It's never on a personal level. I'm very happy. Right. I'm happy to have octopus with you tonight, my dear. Huh. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, mm. Good? Perfect. Yeah. When was the last time you had something this good in your mouth? I know you eat well, but this is like... That's been a while. This is pretty incredible. Why are you here tonight? To see the dead boys. Why? Because they're great. How do you know? Because I f***ed them. <laughs> Who do you want in the rundown, Ann? Did you throw the... Uh... Yeah, I did. That was my present. I'm lunch. They do a song called I Need Lunch. I'm Lydia Lunch. Why did you uh, throw that? What was it? What was it? They, <laughs> they were used tampons. Genuinely used new ones. Why did I give them to them? Because they're going to eat them the second set. You were featured prominently in uh, many of the best-known films of the era. Uh, Most of which sucked. I was trying to be a reflection of the reality at the time. This is why I made the films I made, especially with Richard Curtin. You just dropped me off. Where are you taking me anyway? My house. So we did this horribly violent film called Finger that was based on real things that had happened to me. It was not glamorous. It was not pretty. It was offensive, but I'm trying to work out my psychosexual problems, because I know I'm not alone in them, by making films and speeches that will address the situation that I know other people suffer from. Okay, this was a film very influential, far beyond the well, imaginings at the time. We didn't think that when we did it. We didn't give a shit. We just wanted to make a film and get it out there, because we had to do something, because we were burning and our blood was on fire. Looking back, though, was it all that? Was it a golden period? Are you nostalgic? I'm, no. Is, okay. I, let, am, let me... I am golden. It's always a golden period for me. Look, we have a golden piece of asparagus. It's golden. So do you have any sense of, no. oh, those are the good? <laughs> I don't. Those were the bad old days, baby. You try living on pizza and black oh. beauties. You try giving hand jobs under the table to take your first band to Europe. Oh. You want to go back to that, you go back to that. How were you living? I know the same, hand to mouth. So no sentimentality, no nostalgia at all. I'm doing too much shit all the time. I still have shit to do. Why am I boohooing when I've just been on tour from October to the next October? I'm not stopping. Youth, would you, would you want to go through that again? Or is it Youth. that overrated? Don't I look good for my age? Shit. Oh, yeah. Well, then, what do you want from me? Was it worth The older it? I get, the better I taste. Everybody... What can I say? It's like wine, baby. Did something special happen then, or, or am I just 
My whole all. life is special because I'm still alive doing what I want to do with who I want to do it with. To me, I'm not living in the past because I'm living in the in the present. It's in New York. Get used to it. It has never changed. It had a golden moment here. Probably had a golden moment in the 40s, too. I'm not sure. I wasn't here. Maybe the 60s. We weren't here. So it was all bullshit. No, none of it was bullshit. It happens when it happens, and things change, and time is not what it once was and it isn't anywhere. If you've done one thing, you're living in the past, and that's your glory day, that's your glory day. This is my glory day. I'm here talking to you eating octopus. I got my boots on his knees. And I'm like it. And if only his was big enough, he'd be me now, but we're gonna go have a cigarette. Got that? Thank you. I try to make paintings that are so beautiful that I get lost in them while I'm doing them. And we just hope that other people get lost in it the same way. You know, I have a, a, a John Lurie over my bed. Well, you posted about that. was nice that you posted that. And sometimes, you know, you get these letters and stuff. It's like, your painting saved my life, da da, da. Yeah. But then sometimes, because I don't have any shows... Ah, oh, that's great. It, it feels pathetic, you know? Well, that, this is incredible to me. What? You don't have shows. Like, that's regularly. insane, and it's sick, and it's wrong, and I don't even want to complain about it. You complain I'm complaining about it. About it. Yeah, okay. I am bitter. Because yeah. I'm going to die one day, and they're going to be worth a lot of money. Right. So my paintings are going to be on uh, the same TV station as Wolf Blitzer. Oh, they are. Yes. This is just really a breakthrough for me. <laughs> He's a big art fan. He is not. <laughs> How I came to New York is like I was kind of like on this Coltrane thing. I wanted to find God through music. And I started meeting all these amazing people. They were irreverent. energy was enormous, and it was probably more fun than anybody's ever had in human history for about a year or two. But there was no discipline, which, I mean, I like people who can play their instrument like they just found it on the street, mm -hmm. but they can't just do it once. They got to work on it. I mean, I was a serious saxophone player. I came here as a saxophone player. I had to hide the fact that I... I know, right? I had to hide. I mean, I really did. I would practice for two hours every day, but I would, like, I wouldn't tell people. So, these are eggs, mm. which you could get, you know, at the store. If, so, if you live in a good neighborhood, they will even deliver them to your house. And then you take water, which I know you go to all these exotic places, but... They used to say that New York had the best water. That, that is true. You think it's still true? I, I haven't heard anything to say otherwise. Do you drink it? Yeah, I do. And then you boil them. And then I serve them to you. Outstanding. I am uh, grateful and honored. Well, well, I'm really curious, because I, I've seen your show, and I watch you sit down, you eat, like, some mouse head soup, and then you go, hmm, it's delicious. Just curious to see when you eat the hard-boiled egg if you're going to say this is delicious. As long as it's not, like, half-term chicken fetus in there, which <laughs> wouldn't be the first time today, oh, yeah. by the way, I'll be, I'll be thrilled. We really felt like the universe was between... Houston and 14th Street and, and, and Bowery and Avenue C, you know? And if you went outside there, you were a phony. You were a traitor. It's like, we're done with you. Might as well be an accountant. What about film? I mean, it, as it turned out, you ended up appearing in work by Miss Bo, Jim Jarmusch, all very seminal films. And I made my own, I made my own films too. But it was kind of just like, you go downstairs, you run into a friend, you want to get a cup of coffee, and then, the, that's, you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing to it. And everybody's making these movies, and so do a little music for that. I acted in that one, and I'll hold the boom on that one, you know? Like, I didn't think about it that much, you know? Right. 
And so, look at that. I'm not eating this shit. There's a plate. Thank you. Eggs, the perfect food. Thank you, sir. Eat that. I don't think I've ever cooked for anybody before. <laughs> ah, well, I'm honored, sir. So looking back, is there a danger uh, of over-romanticizing uh, that place and, and that time, given the downside and the, and the body count? I don't know. Does it have to end badly? I mean, I'm glad I survived it. I'm glad I still got my own liver. I'm glad I lived through it. But it's kind of... I don't, I don't know how to add that up. Mm -hmm. I'm sure glad I didn't miss it. say the egg was delicious. It's, oh, no, you did right. not. But I ate two of them. Silence is the highest them. compliment. Just the gnashing of my jaws on those delicious, delicious, delicious eggs. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.